0: Well, good morning. It's a real joy to be with you and to open God's Word together as the people of God. And if you're new with us this morning, as some of you may be, welcome to Rivertown Church. Thank you for joining our gathering this morning on the Lord's Day. We are going to continue in our Exodus series in Exodus chapter 18, uh, where Pastor Dave left off last week. I'm also Pastor Dave, so uh, there's a little redundancy there, but we'll leave that for you to figure out. Uh, but in Exodus chapter 18, we're going to be picking up in verse 13 and concluding the chapter this morning. So if you would, before we all get too cozy, this is our tradition here. If you're able, if you would stand with me in honor of reading God's word, we will read from 13 through the end of the chapter and we'll pray. It says in uh, Exodus 18, verse 13, The next day Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses, his father in law, saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning until evening. And Moses said to his father in law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses, his father-in-law, said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. Ye shall warn them about the statutes and the laws, and make them know the way in which they must walk, and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. Let them judge the people at all times, and every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves, so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father in law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. And then Moses let his father in law depart. And he went away to his own country. You may be seated. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we thank you and praise you for your word that the psalmist says you exalt even above your own name. We praise you that we have the high privilege freely to open it, to study it, to apply it, and to most importantly live by it. We ask, Father, for mercy and grace this morning, both in the proclamation of your word and in the receiving of it, that we would have tender hearts, that I would have the voice to speak as I ought, and that your word would accomplish its mighty purposes in our hearts and minds, and that we would be ever transformed into the image of Christ. And we commit it all to you in full confidence that you are able to do all those things, and we anticipate it. In Jesus' name, amen. I've entitled this message this morning, Delegation by Design. Delegation by Design. If you're familiar at all with this text, you may already be on track with me, but We saw last week this introduction of this character in the Bible called Jethro and and we looked at that in detail last week. He was a priest of Midian, of course, he was Moses' father-in-law. We really first encounter him in Exodus chapter 2. Moses flees Egypt and finds a safe harbor with this man, ends up marrying Zipporah, his daughter, and spends 40 years shepherding this man's sheep in the wilderness near Mount Sinai, interestingly, or at least in that area. And here, after all this time, Jethro comes back, bringing Moses' wife and daughter, uh, or children rather, and he comes to see all that the Lord has done, and we covered that last week, and we saw that he realized, essentially, that the Lord is greater than all other gods. It was a beautiful picture of how uh, God in his redemptive plan will ultimately reach not just the Jewish people, but the Gentiles as well in the whole world with the gospel, and Jethro was a type of that. But now we see that Jethro not only sees that the Lord is greater, he, or he, he hears that the Lord is greater, but now he sees something is amiss in the camp with Moses. So initially his reaction to all that God was doing was one of joy and one of encouragement and one of glorying in the greatness of God. But now as he spends some time with Moses and he sees the day-to-day operation of the camp, he begins to have a different perspective. And he doesn't, of course, retract his former vision, but he builds upon it. And he says, no, what is going on in the day-to-day operations, the administrative side of things, if you would, is not good at all. There is a design being neglected. There is a uh, construction that needs to happen among the men of this massive group of people that has not yet been put into effect. And essentially, he sees a centralized leadership paradigm. And he sees his son-in-law burning himself out. He sees him doing the work of a 100 men. And we will cover that in detail. But I think it's important to lay some foundational groundwork for the very concept of design. When we say things like delegation by design, we are implying that God, in his infinite and perfect wisdom, has created the world, the cosmos, to work in a certain way, a God-glorifying way. God is the creator, and as the creator has created all things with a certain design in mind. From the ants on the ground to the men and women in this room, all that God has made is designed meticulously to work in a certain way that brings him glory and produces ultimately our good, our blessing. And as many of you are aware, we are living in a world where to assert confidently and unapologetically that God made the world in the first place and that he made it with certain irrevocable rules that are binding upon all his creation is viewed by many today as a special kind of crazy, the likes of which constitute in many minds the needful removal of such professions from society by political, economic, and societal force. And yet, God made the world and everything in it by design, for design, to bring him glory, and that's the end of the matter. When men and women of God use this wisdom of God that comes through the word of God and apply it to the world around them, what they are fundamentally doing is exercising a God-given dominion in the earth. And they are joining in the creative character of God to bring order to chaos, as God did in Genesis. Shaping the world back into the image and design of its creator for God's glory. This is what dominion is. This is what bringing order from chaos looks like. God alone can create order out of chaos. But as his redeemed people, every redemptive act that God does in the earth is producing order from chaos. He's producing redemption sovereignly, miraculously out of moral decay and despair. And In the saving of our own souls, we see this effect quite powerfully Uh, in our own lives as God has reached down and sovereignly brought order, redemptive order, out of chaos and is restoring us every day into the image of our creator by design. 1 Corinthians 14, 33 makes this uh, powerful statement, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So here we are in Exodus chapter 18, And we are encountering a moment in Moses' ministry where he discovers, possibly for the first time, that he is operating in a way that is really out of step with God's design. Moses has entered into what many today would call a crisis of leadership, a crisis of leadership. And perhaps this morning you sit here and you can relate with this crisis of leadership and you have a sense of what I'm speaking of. And, you know, we would give it maybe different terms today, such as what I just gave you or burnout or uh, overworked or whatever term you want to throw at it. There is a fundamental thing going on here with Moses that though he's not at this particular moment feeling it as acutely as he will later on, he is about to hit the wall. He is about to go beyond his capacity. And his father-in-law, being a good man, being a God-fearing man, sees this. If he was an enemy of Israel, an enemy of Moses, he would say, oh, keep on doing what you're doing. Everything's great. But no, being a man who has just heard of the greatness of God and seen it with his eyes offers a reproof. So this whole chapter, or the remainder of this chapter, I would outline in this way. So if you're taking notes, this may be of help to you. We see three distinct actions happening. We see first a crisis of unhealthy leadership. Secondly, we see a correction for healthy leadership, and lastly, we see the construction of qualified leadership according to God's design. So first, a crisis, secondly, a correction, thirdly, a construction of qualified leadership. I believe this is what the Lord wants to do, not only in our private lives, but in the church of Jesus Christ, most acutely. The Lord wants to bring us, if we find ourselves, first of all, in a place of unhealthy leadership, he wants to correct us, and he wants to construct us. So we see Jethro offering a rebuke to Moses, a corrective antidote. And I think it's really significant because whenever God moves redemptively in time and space, he creates ministry. I want you to hear that really carefully. Whenever God moves in history, in our lives, he creates ministry opportunities. So if you are finding yourself having problems In ministry sometimes it's because God is actually doing something a lot of times we run into walls we run into crises we run into things that seem antithetical to the redemptive nature of what we believe God is after but we have to step back and recognize that these problems exist in no small measure because one we're out of step with God's design but also because God is moving by design it wants to bring us into alignment with his will So when you and I encounter problems, our initial gut reaction is to freak out. Say, why is this happening? Why am I the only one? Why is my life in the sky is falling? And God says, no, I'm revealing this to you to rescue you, to bring you into a healthier place. So this leadership problem that we find in Exodus 18 is brought about because of God's redemptive work. So authentic God-glorifying ministry is always created out of these redemptive acts, and these problems are the result of God moving in a particular way. Moses didn't choose this role, as we see well from Exodus 3. He tried everything to, to avoid it. He was not at all interested in this, uh, this leadership position, if you will. He really didn't want it at all, and God uh, gave him no out. And God will give us no out as well, because leadership is unavoidable. If you're a man in the room, leadership is unavoidable. How you lead will determine a lot, but your leadership will be there nonetheless. There is no neutrality with your leadership. God has made you a leader. You will either lead in an evil, destructive way, or you will lead in a God-glorifying way. There's only two roads to take. So if God is exposing here this morning a problem in your leadership or even our collective leadership, which I believe he may, he is doing so redemptively, meaning that he's exposing it so that he can provide the cure, not to give you a terminal diagnosis. So take courage in that today if this seems a little uh, punchy. So Moses' problem from the text we read could be summed up simply as a supply and demand issue, if you want to use economic terms at its most basic level. Moses is God's representative, the spokesperson of God's word and ways. 1.5 million people roughly have a lot to sort out coming out of Egypt, coming out of slavery, coming out of idolatry, coming out of pagan worship, coming out of sexual immorality, they got some junk. They got some rubbish to deal with. And they're bringing a lot of it with them. It wasn't a clean break. It wasn't a simple deal. God saved his people, but now he's sanctifying his people. And along the way, with one and a half million people to account to one man, you can imagine the popsicle headache that Moses had. It is kind of startling when you really grasp it, the level of uh, chaos that there must have been in Moses' noble and faithful attempts to shepherd such a difficult and obstinate group of people, as we've already chronicled up to this point. And when confronted by Jethro there in the text, uh, in verse 14, Moses' father-in-law says, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and the people stand around you? And Moses gives to me what would seem like a reasonable answer, because the people come to me. What am I supposed to do? And in our crisis of leadership, we often have the similar response. Why are you doing what you're doing? What other option do I have? Give me another option. And I think very similarly, we, we encounter this complex that Moses has where we don't know another way out. We have these responsibilities, we have these realities, we have these pressures, we have these needs, we have these circumstances, and and the people are coming, and we can't turn them away, or so it seems. Moses is in a tough spot, but Jethro doesn't see that way at all. He says, why are you alone? He goes on to say in verse 17, well, really in verse 16, we're going to come back to verse 16 and flesh an interesting nuance out of this text. But he says, when they come to me, they have a dispute. They come to me, I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his law. So everything Moses is doing is fundamentally great. It's good. I don't know about you, but when I've encountered seasons in my life where I have been at the verge of burnout, I look at all the things I'm really doing, and I say to myself, well, those are all really good things. They're not like anything categorically evil. They're all noble things. They're all even attempts at faithfulness. But yet I can't do it all. Something has to give. And maybe you're here this morning and you say something has to give in my life. And the first thing that would have clued Moses in that his father-in-law gives him is this concept of going at it alone. We know from Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that God says unequivocally that it is not good for man to be alone. Therefore, he creates Eve. And there is that whole dimension of marriage necessary into the created order that God so beautifully and graciously gave us that man ought not to be alone. And that extrapolates itself out in a plethora of arenas of life, not just your marriage. Firstly, it is not good for you to be alone. But secondly, it is not good for you to serve alone. It is not good for you to go about life alone. It is not good for you to do really anything alone. Because ultimately, going at it alone creates nothing but problems for you in the long run. And as, particularly as men, we have this great capacity, so we think, to do things alone. I work for myself, so I spend most of my time alone. And I used to love it, and now I hate it because it just doesn't, it's not really that fulfilling. It's not that satisfying. Of course, I'm a super extrovert, so if you're an introvert, you're like, I, I don't, can't even relate with you. No idea what you're talking about. Uh, but for me, going at it alone is not at all my cup of tea. I used to think it was. And for many of us in the room, we do a lot of things alone. It's part of life, but it's not how God made the world. God did not make the world for us to do things alone. So Moses' father-in-law sees this reality, calls Moses' out. Moses gives his defense. But in verse 17, uh, Jethro says this really mind-blowing thing. And I think this is a key interpretive text in the whole narrative. He says, Moses, what you are doing is not good. What Jethro did not just say is that, Moses, I don't like the color of your T-shirt. He didn't just say, Moses, this isn't a good idea. He said, this is categorically not good, meaning implicitly, Hearkening back to when God made the world and said, everything I made is good. Jethro's saying, Moses, what you're doing is antithetical to how God made the world. That's what he's saying. He's saying, this isn't good just, not because I don't think it's good. Not because I'm offering you some side-handed suggestion because I have a better preference. No, this is foundationally not good because it's antithetical to how God made the world. Because when God builds things, It's good. When God builds things, it's not half okay, it's not passable, it's perfect. And when God calls us to himself and he calls us into service unto himself, we bring all of our not-goodness with us. And God then has to sort that out. So Jethro is saying, what you're doing, Moses, is not just a bad idea, it's foundationally wrong. It is not in keeping with God's design. And in our lives, God will create a reckoning in all of our homes, and our businesses, and our private lives, when we're out of step with him, he will call us to the carpet and he will say, what you are doing is not just a bad idea, it is not good. It is not in keeping with how I made the world. So then we have a crisis on our hands, do we not? We have a reckoning. We have something that must be done to get back in alignment with the ways of God. So what's happening is just this thing. And I think many times we find ourselves doing things like Moses. We're working hard to do what we believe is our job, to please the Lord. We do it exclusively in our own strength, divorced from the wisdom of God's design, and divorced from the community of God. And yet we find that this is not going to work. And you really could describe this crisis in three ways. I think it's fair to describe it in three ways. One, it was all centralized on one man. It was all centralized on one man. It was what today we would call in the business world a pyramid scheme. Now, of course, this is not what Moses was fundamentally doing, but it was essentially the same structure. He's at the top. Everybody's beneath him. Everybody goes to the top to get their answers and their needs met. And it was all centralized on Moses. And secondly, it was all carried by one man. And as a result of those first two, it would inevitably collapse with one man, but destroy many." So this is when leadership gets bad, is when everything is centered on one individual. And when that one individual does it all, he lasts for a season, but then when he falls, not only great is his fall, but he brings other people with him. This is true in your own homes, when you are a husband and a father, when you are leading things your own way, and you have your own vision, and everything is centralized on you, and you defer accountability, and you defer community, and you defer the word of God, and you say, no, I can figure this out on my own, well, you will go on for a ways, and you will collapse mightily, and you will bring other people with you. And some of us have had those experiences, and it's very bitter, it's very painful, it's very sorrowful, when you realize that you were basically leading in a place of unhealth, you were leading destructively, you were leading against God's created design, and it cost you dearly maybe it cost your family dearly but the good news is god can redeem it god desires to redeem it and the antidote i think is this leadership that's centralized in god leadership that's carried by ultimately as we'll see in the text and in this context specifically it's carried by a plurality of godly competent dominion exercising men and lastly It's constructed by design to stand the test and trials over time. This is what God seeks to do in our private lives, in our homes, and in the church. God understands this crisis of leadership way better than we do, because it goes against the fabric of the cosmos. And he understands that if one man takes it all on his shoulders, carries it by himself, he will fall and it will be a mighty fall. But if he defers that leadership to the Lord, operates as an under-shepherd under Christ, the head, surrounds himself with a plurality of godly, competent, dominion-exercising men, he will build something that lasts. He will build something that is godly designed to stand the trials and tests over time. And to use the words of Jesus, he will build on the rock and not the sand. So when the waves do come, and they surely will, he will be left standing, not a wreck." This is the need of our moment. This is the need of our lives. This is the need of men in the 21st century who are particularly so inundated with distraction, inundated with busyness, inundated with all kinds of things that many of which we busy ourselves doing good things for God, and yet all the time we are moving closer and closer to a crisis that we don't see coming. And this is exactly where Moses finds himself. So what does Jethro do? Well, he says, now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. He says, you shall represent the people before God in verse 19 and bring their cases to God and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. So interestingly here, Jethro does not immediately pull Moses out of the fight. Actually, quite the contrary. He says, no, you belong doing what you're doing. Now, many times when we encounter these crises, if you want to use that term, we want to initially just scrap everything. We want to say, okay, I just need a full reset. And maybe you do, maybe you do, but most likely God doesn't want you to retreat from your position. He wants you to hold the ground, but he wants you to reorder things in a way that is more God-glorifying. And this is what Jethro says. No, you belong being Moses. Jethro didn't say, Moses, you shouldn't be Moses. He says, Moses, you need to be Moses, but you need to do less so you can be more. You need to do less so you can be more. Be more of what? The man God called you to be. Well, that would seem to go against everything Moses is doing because he's doing everything. And maybe this morning you say, man, I don't even know what that looks like. How how can I be the man I'm supposed to be when I have all these things that need my attention? And it's certainly not an easy equation. I have been there. Sometimes I still find myself there. And perhaps you do as well. And I have no doubt some of you do. And you have to spend some real time with the Lord, with your spouse, with trustworthy men, and say, what can I do to do less but be more? In my home, in the church of Christ, in my job. What do I need to do to reorder things so that God looks at it and says, this is good? Because right now, I'm looking at it and I can see that this is not good. Something has to give. So Moses does not retreat from his position, he was designed for this position. He has a function to fulfill, a job to be faithful to, needs to meet. What he simply needs is help. What he needs is help. Now, I want to spend some time. I think it's quite necessary for a couple different reasons because if you're a Bible student here this morning, you're saying, well, when are we going to get to Numbers 11? When are we going to get to Deuteronomy chapter 1? Because in both those other texts, which we'll spend some time in, we get an interesting, juicier narrative of this very crisis that Moses has. And we're gonna discover, I believe, I'm gonna make a case for it, that the events happening in Exodus 18 are not necessarily chronological to the T. In other words, they're happening in a particular context surrounding their event at Sinai. So turn with me now to Numbers chapter 11. I want to show something that I think is interesting and kind of took me by surprise. If you, and you're going to have to do some homework if you really want to kind of iron this out. I'm going to give you the information. You can do with it what you want. I think it's significant. Based on the chronological narrative of Numbers chapter 33, particularly verses 15 through 17, I think what we discover is that the context of Exodus 18 In the narrative of Numbers chapter 11 happens around and slightly after the giving of the law at Sinai okay the reason that's significant is really two things first of all the text in Exodus 18 gives us a key I believe some commentators disagree but in verse 16 Moses says I make them know the statutes of God and his laws well how would he really do that if the law had not been given Furthermore, in Numbers chapter 11, we encounter this same narrative, but in a little bit different flavor. And we find that it happens shortly after Jethro, who also goes by the name Hobab, leaves Moses, it would so appear, to go back to Midian. And that can be found in chapter 10 in verses, um, I should have wrote it down. In verses 29 through 32, we see this interaction with Hobab, the son of rule, the Midianite, Moses' his father-in-law. And it doesn't talk about Jethro's counsel, but it does seem to indicate that at some point Jethro left. And Moses pleaded with him to stay. Perhaps he did. The text does not say explicitly. But we do know that the Kenites do settle with the Israelites. So some of his descendants do enter into the land Uh, with the people of God, and that's an interesting and fascinating thing. Nonetheless, my point in all of that is to suggest that in Numbers chapter 11, when we find Moses finally reaching his breaking point, finally boiling over and saying, I can't do it anymore. This is it. We see, I believe, this unfolding right after the giving of the law, which would make sense to me, because the golden calf incident would also have just happened. And Moses would have been under an acute amount of stress. An acute, I mean, he had just spent 40 days and nights on the mountain with God, getting the law. Comes down, finds Aaron and the people worshiping a golden calf, not enthused. Breaks the Ten Commandments. Then God has to give him new commandments in, ex, in uh, Exodus 34. And all of this is sort of happening around the same time. Then to add insult to injury, the people decide yet again that they don't like the manna that God gave them. They want meat. So God gives them meat, and it says that in verse 7 of Numbers 11, or actually even verse 4, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic, but now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. So manna had already come, so this is post that event that we just covered a couple weeks ago. Now, he describes the manna. It says the people went and gathered it, ground it in handmills, beat it in mortars, and boiled it in pots, made cakes of it. It says in verse 10 of uh, Numbers 11, it says, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. And Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom? As a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers, where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. So Moses is at a real crux. He is at a moment in time where he would seem cannot go on any further. And again, perhaps you have encountered such a moment in your life. Perhaps you're there this morning. Perhaps you're approaching it. What is to be done? I believe Jethro's counsel comes in this context. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people, and officers over them and bring them to the tent of meeting. Let them take their stand there with you, and I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And he says, say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. The Lord's going to give you meat. He gives them meat. comes out their teeth. Comes, it just comes out their nose. They just engorge themselves like gluttons. But then it says uh, in verse... 24 of the same chapter, Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. And the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. And then there's the account of a couple men who didn't make it, apparently, to the, uh, the tent, but had been selected, and the spirit comes nonetheless. They prophesy in the camp. Joshua freaks out, says, this isn't good, Moses. They're taking your glory. And Moses wisely says, man, that all the people of God would prophesy, that they would all have the Spirit, how much better life would be. Okay, hold that tension. Hold that thought. We're going to jump now. We're going to do some gymnastics here. But before I, before I jump to the New Testament, because this whole narrative that we're covering in Exodus 18 has a New Testament equivalent, a New Testament uh, similarity, similarity in Acts chapter 6. We're going to go there in a moment. The reason I also believe that this chronological discrepancy, if you would call it that, is significant because if God brought Moses to this crisis after Sinai, the people entered covenant, the Mosaic covenant at Sinai with the Lord, received the law, became a formalized community of God. Very significant. It essentially is like saying, in no uncertain terms, they were like the church. So we look back on that and we say at Sinai, you have the covenanted community of God governed by the word of God to exercise dominion in the earth sent out from Sinai. Two months after leaving Egypt. This is an event, not just in history, but as a type and foreshadowing of the type of event that would happen when Jesus, uh, under the new covenant, would birth his church, okay? So if that's true, and I believe it is, then the whole crisis of leadership is the result of God doing something awesome with the people of Israel at Sinai. And now that there is a structure and a skeleton and an actual covenanted community bound to each other under the word of God, God says now they need order, now they need direction, now they need help, because Moses cannot do it all himself. So if what I'm proposing is true, and I certainly believe it is, or I wouldn't be saying it, please jump to Acts chapter 6, because here we have the exact type of event unfolding itself in the New Testament. And now, I think it's a safe assumption, though some would disagree, and that's fine. Um, It certainly doesn't say explicitly that Acts 6 is where deacons were formed, but I think it's a safe assumption, or at least we can put two and two together to say that something formal happened, something of legitimate organization happened in Acts chapter 6, just after the church's birth. Notice now, instead of 70 men receiving the Spirit, all the people of God have received the Spirit. God has poured out lavishly in fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, the Spirit of God upon his people. So what that means is many things, but not least of which it means that all of God's people now have a role to play. They are covenantally bound as the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, endowed with the Spirit of God for the purpose of ministry. The purpose of ministry. As a result... The Greeks, uh, the, the Hellenistic Greeks, the Gentiles start to, to mingle with this very Jewish church in the very just infancy stage uh, in Jerusalem. They start to mingle. There starts to be some needs that arise with the widows. There starts to be some problems. There starts to be some organizational hiccups and administrative delinquencies, if you would. And we find in Acts chapter 6 that in these days, in verse 1, when the disciples were increasing in number, So when ministry is moving forward, God is moving redemptively in time and space, a complaint arises, interestingly enough, by the Hellenists uh, against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the Twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right, again, it is not good, note that, that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, on face value, if you're new to this text, you say, "Well, hold on, wait, wait a minute. Who do these guys think they are? Some fancy-pants apostles, can't-serve tables, a good grief. I mean, they're supposed to be like the holiest men around. But no, they recognize that God made the world a certain way. He made the world in such a way that they would be against God's design to neglect their pastoral and apostolic responsibilities of preaching the Word of God ministering through prayer for the people, being pastorally involved with the people to do a necessary and God-glorifying activity that was not beneath them. It was just not their role. It was not what God had called them to do. And they were wise enough by the grace of God to see it and said, no, this is not where we belong, serving tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, Whom we will appoint to this duty. So they're not just anybody. They're not just the local handyman. They're godly men. And if you have any doubt of that, all you have to do is read the account of Stephen, who was one of the seven who becomes the first martyr of the church. This guy was a ball of fire. I mean, he was something else. He preached one of the best sermons in all of the Bible in front of the Sadducees and then they stoned him to death. This was your deacon. I mean, this guy. It was something else. And, and, and this is the kind of quality and character that God is looking for, and this is what the apostles were looking for, just like Moses needs. He says, men of good reputation, full of the Spirit, they were governed by the Spirit, they were led by the Spirit, they had the mind of the Spirit, and they were able to apply the Word of God into practical, everyday situations, thereby using wisdom to solve problems and we will appoint them to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And he lists the names of the men. And notice this in verse 7. Why is this good? Why is this right? What's the fruit? Does it, does it produce? Does it produce good fruit? Does it produce elitism, this attitude of separation? No, quite the contrary. It says the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So what this does is it catapults the church forward. It moves the mission forward. It moves ministry forward because all of a sudden you have the word of God being honored, which is central always. If ministry is moving forward and the word of God is not multiplying, there's a huge issue. The word of God is moving forward. Disciples are being made. Okay, red flag number two. If disciples are not being made, and the mission is moving forward, it's not the mission. Secondly, people are coming to the faith. Okay, those three things are healthy ministry. The Word of God is being glorified and preached and proclaimed and heralded unapologetically with authority, disciples are actually being made, people are actually learning to follow Jesus, slowly but surely, and people are coming to the faith. Okay, things are good in Jerusalem. Flip back with me now to Exodus 18, where we'll land the plane in the next 15 minutes. And I want to just bring this all together. It should be pretty self-explanatory at this point because what we see going on in Acts chapter 6 is, of course, the same thing we see going on with Moses. So again, Moses didn't need to do less. He needed to be more. Being more involved, his devotion to teaching the people, pastoring the people, preaching the word of God, telling them about his statutes and laws. But now the issue arises, what kind of help do we recruit? What kind of men do we call up? This is always the problem. But it's not a problem that God doesn't have an answer to, as we saw in Acts chapter 6. The character of the men would determine their competence. Not the other way around. The character of the men would determine their competence. So we don't look for competent men and then sort of patch their character together and say, okay, now you can be of some help. That's not what we're trying to do. But I want to focus on the latter part of the description in Exodus 18, in verse 21, where Jethro says, This is who you're to look for. It's really beautiful. It's really awesome to me and very comforting and challenging in the description, especially in the Hebrew language, of what these men are to be marked by. And the question I would ask before we get into it is As the men, particularly the men, I'm not singling out the ladies by any stretch. Ladies, you have a, a beautiful role to play in God's church. You have the spirit as well. God is going to use you in mighty ways, not least of which to assist and help your husband be the kind of man that the text that we're about to uh, it reveals, okay? So we're not being sexist in any way, but nonetheless, this is male-centric in this particular charge. So moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. Okay, this is great. Abel. In the Hebrew it comes from a root word that I'm not going to pronounce for you because I can't. But it comes from a root word speaking of like the force of a hurricane or a tornado. I think that's really awesome. Because he's what what Jethro is saying is he's not looking for docile men. He's not looking for safe, passive, aggressive, gentle, afraid of their own shadow kind of men. He's looking for guys that have the force of a hurricane okay? But that force is under control. That power is subjected to Christ. So when he says an able man, he's saying a good man. He's saying a competent man. He is saying you need, Moses, a force like a hurricane of valiant, virtuous, mighty men, having proven it at their home. Having proven it at home. He says because if you can discern such men, you will discern it because they're already those men. They don't all of a sudden like get it together and then become what they need to be. They're already those kind of men or they're on the way. They're on the way. So Abel means a force of valiant, virtuous, mighty men having proven it at home. Secondly, they fear God. They were not man pleasers, but they feared the Lord and revered his word and ways. They esteemed the counsel of God more than the counsel of their peers. They did not fear man when it was easy to be intimidated by them. Think of a million and a half people and you got 70 dudes governing and ruling the day-to-day operations. It would be really easy to get intimidated by 100,000 people calling out your name, saying, we don't like your judgment. And yet these men fear the Lord. They were trustworthy. They had been proven faithful and were stable and established Habitually, notice that, habitually in what was pleasing to the Lord. So they had already been proven faithful. They were stable in their faithfulness. They were established in the habits that brought blessing and peace and pleasure to the Lord and to their homes. They were men who were faithful in their spiritual disciplines. They were faithful in community. They were faithful to lead their flock among them as best as they could by the grace of God. They were not perfect. They were not always the nicest. They were not always like your prototypical, like just church mouse kind of guy. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about manly men that have actually been proven faithful. And lastly, they hate a bribe. You can't buy these men. You can't pay them off to get your way. They hate it. They turn away all forms of covetousness. They despise it. And they hold to the tact of faithfulness. They cannot be bought like Judas. They cannot be turned and manipulated by money. Hugely important characteristics of men who God will use in his church and in their homes. So men, do these characteristics mark your life? When you read this text and you say, man, I want to be an able man. What does that look like? Well, we just saw you are aspiring to be a force, an army, or a member of the army of God? You are aspiring to be virtuous. You are aspiring to be uh, mighty, and you're aspiring to do it at home, not just in public. Are you a man that fears God, or are you just always shaking at every intimidation that comes around you, all the peer pressure that you have at work, at your job? Do you, do you fall prey to the intimidation of the world in your life? So you can't say that. You can't believe that. You can't do that. Who are you? Who were you? Does that cause you to retreat? Or do you rise up and say, no, I fear God, not men? Are you trustworthy? And do you hate a bribe? These are and were the kinds of men that were to function as covenant heads or chiefs, as the Bible explicitly says. They were to be chiefs, which means being a representative head over the people. They were to be literal heads over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. So some had greater portions, some had smaller portions based on the stewardship capabilities, perhaps the giftings of said man. Uh, They were delineated in those ways. It doesn't say explicitly how, but 70 men with Moses and uh, obviously Joshua and, you know, Aaron, these guys, with a million and a half people. So that's, that's quite a heavy task. That's like governing the city of Boston with the men in this room. That's what it's like. So that's not a small ordeal. But these kinds of men, they had different talents, they had different portions, but they were united by one spirit. They were intent on one purpose, to serve and minister to the people of God in the every day. They were always to serve in season and out of season. It says in verse 26, And they judged the people at all times. Anything that was too hot to handle, they brought to Moses. They didn't call their own shots. They didn't become their own authorities. They didn't manipulate the scriptures to suit their own fancy while Moses was busy doing whatever he was doing. They were united in spirit under the banner of Christ. They all adhered to the law of God. And they said, we're going to shepherd faithfully in our context. If something gets too sticky, too problematic, we fire it up the chain. And we're all going to do this together because we're all bound under Christ. And they were to be ready, as Paul tells Timothy, in season and out of season. What does this functionally do for the people? Well, Jethro says as much and <laughs> Acts says as much. That It says in 22, jumping back a few verses in uh, Exodus 18, it says, let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, notice this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. Man, I want that in my life. I want to be able to endure. I want to be a blessing, and I want the people in my life to enjoy peace. I want the church of Jesus to enjoy peace. I don't, as a leader, want to get in the way of your peace, your shalom, because I'm an unhealthy leader. I don't want to create problems where the Lord is no longer directing us because I'm soloing it and, you know, whatever you all have to say doesn't really matter. This is the kind of dynamic that can be really unhealthy. And here Jethro says, no, Moses, you don't want to do that. You want to invite counsel under the Lord. You want to seek God. You want to share ministry. You want to bear the burden with other men and women. You want to give ministry away as much as is possible to competent, qualified people so that the ministry can grow, it can expand, blessing can occur, God will still direct you, and you will not lose your vision. You will not lose your vision. So if you've lost your vision, perhaps it's because you've gone it alone, you haven't sought counsel, you haven't prayed in a long time, saying, Lord, give me fresh vision for the path in front of me, And you've just kind of gone it alone. You've done the solo ranger thing. And we all do that really too easily. So all of this to say, as we wrap it up, is not just administrative efficiency. You know, you could read your latest business book and derive a lot of these principles from it quite readily. And leave the Bible at home. But that's not what we're doing here. This isn't a business seminar. This isn't a leadership seminar. This is the word of God. This is us getting back to how God made the world. This is us restoring the world, reconciling all things to God and being active agents in the process of God reconciling the world to himself because he designed it to work a certain way and how God designs things to work are always good. So it ensures the leader's vitality in the ministry, the people's peace and joy from the ministry. And I really believe in closing that the effectiveness and longevity of our local church here at Rivertown greatly depends upon the establishment of godly qualified men in the home and in the church without which we will effectively spin our wheels always putting out fires but never growing in real maturity. If we don't cultivate this here we're not gonna get very far down the road. It's not me saying that, it's the Word of God saying that. This is essential for every healthy church to cultivate this kind of culture for the growth and the blessing of God's mission in the earth. I want to close in Ephesians chapter 4. We'll just read Ephesians chapter 4. I think it's beautiful and it fits well. Uh, in synopsis to all that's been said, it gives us a kind of a vision for what Paul has in view when he thinks about the church and its function, what we should have in view who is over all and through all and in all. Wow. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, in verse 9, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended. Far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Implicit in that is the fact that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. We are his agents, exercising his godly authority and dominion in the earth. How does that look? Verse 11 He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Why? To equip the saints, you, for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ to what telos, to what end, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What's the alternative if we don't? We will stay children, tossed to and fro, carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, craftiness, deceitful schemes. Rather, speak the truth in love. We are to grow up. We don't like to be told to grow up. That's what Paul says. We need to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped meaning every member matters when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love church this is so vital and so critical this isn't a good suggestion this isn't a sermon about rearranging your life so you can have better free time this is about the vitality and health of the church of Jesus Christ in the earth Now, by the grace of God, praise God, we don't hold it all together. He does, and he's been doing it for 2,000 years. So let's not get all shaky in our boots, but we have a job to do, and it's a beautiful job, and it's a holy calling, and I just want to charge everyone in the room, many of you are doing it so faithfully. Many of you are on the way to doing it faithfully. Some of you have not yet started to do it. Wherever you are, let's get on with it by the grace of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your mercy. We ask that you, in your gracious kindness, give us the strength to avoid these crises of leadership, to avoid these ancient pitfalls that we find so relevant in our day today, that we have tasted of the other way, and it's bad fruit. Lord, we want to move in the direction of fruitfulness. We want to move in the direction of effectiveness. We want to order our lives properly under God because you have designed the world to work, and when it works your way, it is good. Father, forgive us for not doing things your way. We all reek of our own way. Lord, we repent of it. Teach us, Father. Make us a teachable people. Make us a humble people. Make us a people that fear your word, and say, Lord, make us the kind of people that you delight to use, that builds your church, and that moves your mission forward. And we commit it all to you, believing that you can do it, and you want to do it, and you will do it. In Jesus' name, amen.